Welcome to the Thrive at 20 podcast, where we're celebrating 20 years of Thrive Partnership Group by sitting down with leaders who have helped shape the legacy of the organization. Here's founder Rob Sagan in conversation with one of those leaders today. Good morning. Our Thrive at 20 podcast series continues this morning with Bill Andriopoulos, one of our favorite Canadians who've been successful abroad. Uh, Bill, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good morning, Rob. You're joining us this morning from Montreal. It, uh, the weather's as spectacular there as it is here this morning. It's a nice way to start our day, isn't it? Yeah, it's wonderful. It's surprisingly hot for this time of the year. It is. And I asked that question because I know you travel a lot for your work, uh, back and forth down to Dallas, Texas, to the head office of Galderma, where you're the Vice President of U.S. Medical Affairs. Did I get that title right, Bill? Yeah, you got it right. Vice President of Medical Affairs for Galderma. And if you thought Montreal was hot at this time of the year, then mm-hmm. you should check out Dallas. And I'll bet. I'll bet it's been, uh, this summer's been just something else. So glad to hear that you're in the nice, cool confines of Montreal. Well, I, I've been looking forward to this conversation, Bill. As you know, um, one of the things that I particularly enjoy is watching Canadians flourish on the global scene, particularly in life sciences. Over the last 20 years or so in particular, there's been just a number of leaders from the Canadian industry who've gone on to big and exciting opportunities globally. And uh, you're certainly near the top of that list in, in, in terms of what I can see. And certainly in the medical affairs area, Bill, I think that um, it really stands out to me, the, the bold moves that you and Effie and your family took uh, in your career and in your personal lives to not um, get complacent, to push yourselves, to take some risk. And uh, it sure looks to me like most of those decisions have worked out really well for you and your wife, Effie, and you got two children, right? Alexia is 10 and Philip's seven now. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. 10 and seven. Yeah. The, you know, the, the old timers where I grew up in a small town used to call that the million dollar family, you know, the boy and the girl. Mm-hmm. The problem was my dad had a five and a half million dollar family or however that math works. Because kept that <laughs> boy, girl, boy, girl. <laughs> and there were seven of us. So, <laughs> so I don't know. And then yeah. there's that. A million dollars would be in a millionaire line. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's what. So, Bill, why don't we go back to, uh, I'd like to talk to you about a number of things this morning. But to me, the theme that really jumps out to me as I reflect on our relationship over the years is your courage, yours and Effie's and the families to try on different things and to push the envelope. Um, you're someone who I think embodies the words, why not? You know, when you think about um, the way that you guys have put yourselves out there to try different things and move around a little bit. Well, let's go back to when we first met. I believe you were just getting started in the dermatology space with MERS, which is a company that's based out of Germany. Uh, yes. I believe you're working for the Canadian affiliate here as a medical science liaison. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, that's correct, Ron. That was that uh, takes us back to what 2010 or so, correct? That's yeah, about 12, 13 years ago when yeah. we first met, uh, talking about the Montreal Expos. <laughs> yeah, another great, uh, a great thing we have in common was living and dying by those frustrating Expos teams in the 
Well, for me, I go back because I'm much older than you, but my dad and I used to listen to the games in the late 60s, 70s. We get the crackling sound of distant airwaves. And my mom would look at the two of us to shake her head and think, what are the two of you knuckleheads doing out here on the porch? And we would go outside because we'd get that bounce effect of the radio signals. When the lights went, went up, went on, and we could pick up the station at Belleville and we'd sit out there for an hour fighting off mosquitoes. And my dad would, of course, curse and get frustrated with those expos. But fond mm-hmm. memories. That, that was such a fun team in the city. Montreal really got behind the expos when they were great. And then we're quick to turf them when they were bad, which is typical of a Montreal team. But well, let's start there. What's your favorite memory of those great expos teams? Uh, it's... It, they were some of the most amazing memories. My, I have two older brothers, and they would take me to a game every other Sunday to um, at Olympic Stadium, and we'd watch the likes of, of Gary Carter and uh, Andre Dawson, and it was just a, such a special time to connect with my brothers um, at that stadium, just as peaceful three hours or whatever it was watching this team that we love so much. And I know for my brothers who are working hard at the shop at what they work, it was a time for them to disconnect and, um, and absolutely loved it. So it just brings me to such a happy place thinking about the Montreal Expos. And when we first met at Mertz, you made actually just even half a comment during one of your training sessions about the Expos. And I, as soon as the break happened, I chased you with, my coffee. <laughs> I remember that. I think we were laughing about how the American players coming up to Montreal found it so unusual to have the the, the crowd singing, especially yeah. during the playoffs and when they were uh, making runs for the playoffs in August, September. And what was that song, Bill? Do you remember uh, that the the crowd used to sing? It started with a V, um, not Falare, but something like that, where they would they would just it would sound like a, a European soccer game. And I remember looking down and seeing Warren Cromartie. Oh, um, Ole. Wasn't it the Ole? Yeah, yeah, the yeah. Ole song. Oh, yeah, my right. God. Yeah. yeah, and it would be 30,000, 40,000 people, sometimes more. Mm. I was there for the 81 playoffs. And I remember the Philadelphia Phillies couldn't get over the insanity of the crowd. There was a guy running around the in between the two levels, the second and first level, there was a walkway, if you remember. Mm. And, and there was a, a guy who was buck naked running through with a Quebec flag on one shoulder, an Expos thing on his other shoulder. And he just kept running around the stadium. I remember thinking, <laughs> what would Pete Rose think of that as he looks up in the crowd? Yeah. <laughs> it was just crazy. Well, those yeah. were good times. Those were good yeah. times. There were, I actually, funny enough, I loved the Expos because. I'm from Montreal, but um, my my brothers took me to one game in 86, so I must have been eight years old, and it was, I think it was 86 or 87. Anyways, it was a home opener, and something happened that was just truly remarkable, but they played the New York Mets, mm-hmm. um, who won the championship in 86. That's right. That's the Bill Buckner year, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And then this home opener Dal strawberry gets up to the plate he's got this amazing natural swing he's tall and this pitch comes out and he hits this ball rob where i've never seen anything hit like this in my life but it actually hit the um the rooftop of the olympic stadium so the outer rim 
where the covering of Olympic Stadium was, it hit the rim. The ball was destroyed. It fell back down at 90 degrees. And the officials and the crowd were confused because they didn't know what that meant. <laughs> was it a home run? Did, was this something like in, in inside tennis where it hits the roof? and it, So nobody nobody really understood, but then they, they figured it out that that was a home run. And that actually was the uh, probably the most powerful and longest home run ever hit at Olympic Stadium. And that just completely wowed me. And I ended up being a silent New York Mets fan. <laughs> during the next <laughs> so i had a secret new york mets t-shirt yeah i had you know sure you wear that t-shirt on your older brothers or you like no. it's not kicked out of you yeah. no exactly so but that that moment in time where he just this is just completely destroyed that ball at olympic stadium <laughs> made me a mets I fan which, i didn't i didn't know you were at that legendary game i mean that's a youtube yeah. classic that daryl strawberry yeah. hit off the top of the stadium and it's yeah. not like hitting the roof at the tropicana which happens a lot Right. This is this is unbelievable. Like I think I've read somewhere that they estimate that home run went over five hundred feet. Yeah, <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. Oh, and I think I remember the song now. Valerie, Valra. Remember that? Oh, that's right. That, that was before Valerie, Ole. Yeah, Valerie. that's right. That's right. <laughs> oh my goodness! And then they'd have those Vivasulia horns going the whole time. Mm-hmm. Oh my God! What a what an environment. Yeah. Uh, well, I hope baseball comes back to Montreal soon. They come to their senses because I think it would be fantastic. But yeah. uh, well, we're unfortunately we can't talk baseball the whole time because I really <laughs> want to make sure our listeners have the advantage of all the things you picked up along your way, sure. both academically but also professionally. And a little bit, if you're comfortable with it, though, we can talk a little bit about uh, a little bit of your family background, some of the interesting <laughs> genealogy things that you've discovered over the last little while but why don't we start with your education you if i remember right have completed some do- postdoctoral work at harvard but uh, what led up to that like when little bill andriopoulos is sitting in mm. his uh you know 11th grade in montreal deciding what he's going to do next there are a lot of options in front of well and go back to these different school systems so you have lots of yeah. options so take us from that sort of 15 16 year old bill to the end of your academic process what what made those decisions uh the the direction you took yeah yeah robbie was it was an interesting one when i was in when i was in high school i knew i had a love for science and i i knew i wanted to spend the rest of my life just committing it to advancing science and i knew that at an age where i was in high school i know it's tough to figure out what you want to do at that particular age for the rest of your life. But I knew it was going to be grounded around science. Yeah. I didn't really quite know which particular area specifically, whether it was going to be in research or doctor. Uh, but I knew that science was something. It wasn't going to be, you know, accounting or or anything else. It was going to be around science. And it was an interesting thing because I grew up literally um, with with my my family business, which uh, my two brothers, my dad and my mom have a machine shop uh, that manufacture gears um, for all sorts of things. And I I grew up with this my my whole life um, with the manufacturing, with the machining. And um, honestly, it's from there where I learned just hard work and where I need to be requires that, that type of hard work. And so I knew that 
I had the hard work in me to do something. <laughs> I I knew that I wanted to do something in science. So um, as you mentioned before, in Quebec, we have a CEGEP system. So you go up to grade 11 in high school. Yeah. And then after that, it's two years of this. Um, it's it's a, right before university, something called CEGEP. And that's the particular moment where you get more exposed to what you could potentially do, whether you go into the sciences, whether you go into economics or the arts. And then that's two years. And then from those two years, you go into university, which is one year less than the Ontario and the U.S. system, which you typically is about three years. And the SEJA was, was difficult. Um, it was, I was in the sciences, but I, I, I was working hard, but I, I struggled academically. It was, um, I tried to do the best that I, that I could. I, I, you know, I didn't party or do any of those type of things, but I, I really tried um, my best in this particular science, but it, it was a learning process. It was not only, it was about how to learn and execute um, on the exams. And those were tools that I, learned throughout the process of late stages high school sejap and then a really hard learning in university um so and you and you chose which program for your undergrad bill it was a bachelor of science in physiology at mcgill mm -hmm. um so you're fortunate that, to have a world-class campus in the same city as you grew up in yeah yeah i was very lucky and it was yeah, it was it was the university that I aspired to go to, um, with all the breakthroughs in science that they've done and and everything else. It was basically two universities. There was McGill and Harvard that were on my radar from a mm -hmm. from an early age. And but again, I I it was tough, Rob. <laughs> I got into this first year, and there's about 500 students in a class, and you know we're learning these these things in science, and I I um I really struggled quite a bit throughout that first year, but. I uh, I really started to learn what tools I needed to study, what was important, um, and then the next two three years completing that degree, I practically aced every course after that. But it was not it was a strange thing, Robbie. You know, in high school I was okay. At the Sejep level, it was a it was a really tough learning of this is the real the real world <laughs> in yeah. terms of. Um, you know, the academics and education. And then you multiply that by tenfold when I got out to McGill. And it 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 just took me this learning curve um, to execute what I wanted to do. Um, but I wouldn't have done it if I didn't know the hard work that's required, um, which I learned from my family, which I uh, was through working with my brothers and my dad and my mom at the machine shop doing whatever it was uh, for us to um to to make the business successful so, yeah it's uh and you sound like one of the students that i observed going into university that um had to work hard for marks to get there and then had such a good discipline that once they realized that listen most of the kids who make it into universities are they're like in sports kids who are like captains of their teams let's say hockey because you and i are canadians you know mm -hmm. they get drafted into the ohl or or the qmhl and they realize everybody was the captain of their team. So it's a lot of good players. And usually what separates the next stage of advancement is the discipline and the ability to 
learned every time they come to the rank. And it sounds like you were one of those students that I admired because I wasn't very disciplined. My marks went down between high school and university because I was a social person. And uh, it took it took till my last couple of years to figure out a little bit better balance between the two. But I really had a lot of uh, admiration for what you're talking about and how it it's something that's good to learn, right, in the academic world, because it certainly comes into play in the business world once you get to that yeah. rung on the ladder, right? No question yeah. about that. So then, so you finished the undergrad at McGill, and, and tell, tell us, you know, what happens from there? How do you make the decisions for the next levels? Yeah, it's... Um... It's just funny how things work. I you have you have a plan like you know as Mike Tyson say everyone's got a plan to get punched in the face and then, <laughs> <laughs> and then there goes the plan <laughs> and then it goes the plan. Um, yeah. But I I I had my uh, I just fell in love with this topic in university in my last year around iron metabolism, which is a really random thing. But iron, the metal iron, is is so important to our body, and it could be actually really toxic whether the levels are very low or very high and our body has this way to control it so that it keeps it at this homeostasis where it prevents it from going one end to the other in the spectrum and being harmful and i was so fascinated by this and there was this professor um who taught this like like it was the most important thing in the world for our body and everything else and the mechanisms and the unexplored um frontiers that still are required to unravel what needs to be discovered uh, with iron science. You know, what controls it? What signals are there when you eat something? What, what gets triggered when you eat too, you know, eat too little something. Um, I was so fascinated by this. So I, 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 I was, I was taking tons of notes and now I'm doing, I'm doing well academically. Now I've, I feel like I've really pushing the boundaries of what I can do. I'm going max and I'm, I go to this professor. I'm like, you know, this this course is life changing to me. I want to dedicate, um, you know, my time for this. And and he said, unfortunately, I don't have any room in my lab for you. I said, oh man, <laughs> you know, I, I I felt like this was just another another setback. But I, I said, okay. Um, so I'm just walking out of the lab, and he's he said, you know, it's no offense, I just don't have the the room. Um, I'm walking out of the lab, and there's a neighboring lab, and um, it's another iron lab. So I, I walk in randomly with my, my CV and I, I go see this um, amazing professor who at McGill. And I basically short, you know, short saying, I, I, I think I can contribute science to the iron science. I'm, I'm a hard worker. <laughs> I, I think yeah. I can bring all the tools needed to help your lab and advance the science because that's what I want. I, I want to uncover all of these things in iron metabolism and he gave me a shot and you know four years later I, I earned my phd degree in this wonderful lab um at mcgill at the jewish general hospital and i was so thankful for that you know that that professor who gave me that one shot um to be able to do that in my in my career yeah yeah and through your academics were there a couple of teachers that stand out for not only giving you a break, but inspiring you, Phil? Well, where are, there, is there, are there any that stand out to you now as you reflect back? Um, yeah, the ones that really inspired me, funny enough, were, were topic-related. 
okay. when it came to iron. So that really just drew my passion for that. And then um, this this professor just really enabled enabled me and gave me the tools to to drive forward with what I what I what I wanted to do. And I now I reached a stage, Rob, where I I learned how to study. Okay, so I learned how to execute and 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 be successful in in getting results academically. Now I've gone back into a almost semi-workspace where I'm working in a lab, I'm doing academics, but I feel like now it's exploded and I want to do everything. So I want to collaborate with another lab. I want to research another topic. I want to get into iron and cancer. I want to get into iron and deficiency. I'm all over the place. And I was successful in it but it was the stage that i was in was it exploded and then came the next step in my career where i learned to your question one of the fundamental things um, that carry through through the rest of my career is when i went to harvard and that was my postdoc so i graduate my phd from mcgill and i go to and i go to harvard postdoc yeah. at the massachusetts general hospital and i bring all this passion hard work, resiliency, and I want to do everything. And I remember the first few weeks that I'm there, my professor, who was overseeing the lab at Harvard, my postdoc, he said, I got one word for you. And I, I it's focus. You have to focus. You have to focus on one thing and you execute. You are loving a lot of different things, <laughs> but you need to focus. And those Why do I have this image of a big puppy dog running at him from Montreal with legs going everywhere. <laughs> and he's looking at you going, Oh my God, who's this kid? <laughs> yeah. 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 And then, yeah. So that, that was, that was to your question, um, a large inspiration. A lot of my undergrad teachers and high school, they were all inspirational too, but this one, this one was a turning point and it, it really, um, shift my mindset and it, the focus, actually, the project was to do a, a first author nature paper, which in the scientific um, arena is, is a big deal. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, that was that was a turning point and inspiration was that next step as well. Uh, when I learned that focus and bringing and funneling all of that energy uh, to executing one strong thing um, was what I learned there. Well, thank goodness for your instructor at Harvard, because, boy, did you learn that lesson and. <laughs> take advantage of it in your work career because that's something I noticed about you right from the beginning was you always had the best questions. Like even the first time we met and we started talking about the expos after the seminar, I do remember you talking a little bit about where the industry was going in dermatology because I spent a lot of years in that space, as you know, with Botox Cosmetic launch. And I think we, we were talking about five years after we'd really open up that category and you had, you had some really good questions about where I could see it going and what I was hearing from other people in the space. And it was a it was a it was a very engaging conversation. I think we even started talking a little bit more at the end of the day when we were waiting for the team to have dinner. And yeah, yeah. I just really enjoyed that exchange we were having it, you know, because I was meeting a lot of people on my travels going from company to company at that time. And it's not a lot of things stand out when when you have that volume of interaction. But like, you know, certain dinners stand out, certain conversations stand out. And that one stuck with me because that's when we had a chance to stay in touch. Um, your boss was um, 
interested in moving you up. Uh, some people at the company saw some talent with you, and I certainly was impressed. So I was supporting that idea, and then lo and behold, things started to take off for you. So let's take 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 us back to the transition then for you from academic to industry. That must have been a huge decision for you because you're having such academic success. You you know I, I love the notion. I think it's uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson talks about this in his work, his podcasts, and publications that. You're in a game. Uh, you just have to realize you are in a game, and it's there's certain rules that you learn to abide by, and then hopefully flourish during that game. And you had the academic thing figured out because that path is, you know, one of the ones that any academic would would have a lot of respect and almost some envy for. McGill to Harvard, the publication at a young age on something as topical and interesting as iron deficiency and the impact on health and well-being. So there you you. Bill, I mean, you'd, you'd climbed a pretty tall mountain. Uh, you must have been proud of yourself. I'm sure your family was very proud of you. Uh, boy, you know, coming from a Montreal family, which, you know, ran a machine shop and probably the classic immigrant story to North America. And you can go back and tell us a little bit about your background here in a minute. But how did you end up in on the industry side, Bill? Because it seems like you were just flourishing on the academic side. Yeah. Yeah, I was. And I, it was, I, I pretty much reached um, a great state where I had this this nature paper from Harvard. I, I'd done two years uh, living in Boston. And, um, but I, I realized to myself, I was, you know, thinking long and hard while I was living, um, living in Boston. And I felt like I've had this uh, thing ingrained in me when I was, you know, working back at the shop where I can contribute something to science at a level that's different than academia, um, which is in the pharmaceutical industry. Mm-hmm. And this, this, this ability to have um, uh, grown up with a family business and knowing what it takes to be successful and for a business, I felt like I could break those components. I couldn't quite explain what those components were, but I felt like I had something where I can contribute at a level that was at a business level also, but advanced the science for patients and everything else. And I, I knew at that point, um, and I was married at the time and I was going to move back to Montreal, um, to be with my beautiful wife, Effie. And I, I knew that was going to be, and that was, that was a, (laughs) It's one thing to want that, but the transition from academia to pharmaceuticals is is not an easy thing. It's quite a, it's quite a chasm to leap from that <laughs> yeah. ice floor to the other ice floor. Yeah, it's a great so story you... to say. You know, <laughs> you know, I want to, but it's another thing to do it, Rob. Right? It's well, how did you how did you pull it off? Um, well, without the experience, there were a lot of rejections um, within the pharmaceutical industry to get that first shot, and I had to. I knew it was going to be within medical affairs. So I, I I was friends with someone at the time who actually was talking to me about a role called a medical science liaison. And they said, you know, Bill, when you present in Boston, your research, you're a good presenter. You know, you, you talk about the science and explain things that people can understand and, and provide a story to it. And when it comes to education, you know, this is, particularly something that would be interesting for you is become a medical science liaison. 
So I felt like that was going to be the entry point. So I had my focus on that position, but I didn't get to it. Um, I actually started out as a medical writer because this wonderful um, president at the time of this company called Time of Communications uh, gave me a shot again. I got a shot <laughs> uh, to yeah. enter into the private industry as a as a writer. So I had just completed a PhD at McGill, a postdoc at Harvard, a first author nature paper. And now I go into the private industry at the um, at the base level, okay? At the base mm -hmm. level of the whole thing. I'm starting from scratch, from from the beginning. And I started as a writer and I, I worked like hell, writing, 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 writing. I think it was close to a year for this wonderful company where we did actually education materials. Um, there's actually a funny story to that. Um, it's my funny work story, actually. You want to hear a funny work story? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, we usually say those to the end. Let's do it now. Okay, yeah, let's do it now. Because So I'm at this company and I'm, I'm interviewing with different people. This is the writing company. And luckily, Rob, I, I think, I hope you agree, but when I when I speak to people, you know, any any person at any level, I I, I speak to them the same way as you know we're speaking right now. I, I just sure. I'm I respect absolutely everybody from every so I'm <laughs> so I get to this interview and I, I don't know who I'm interviewing. Um it's this, you know, this really wonderful lady. She she's asking me these questions. Um and I'm I don't know who she is, so I'm I'm you know, I'm still going with it. I'm giving her great answers and everything else. Um, but only after did I learn that she was actually the owner and president of that company. So she, <laughs> um, so luckily, you know, luckily that part of the interview went well. But that was not disclosed when I was talking to her, which was which was good. <laughs> and we laugh about it. We talk about it um, now, but oh yeah, um, but yeah, it was it was a good. Well, I, I had a sort of a similar thing. My first job, I was interviewing uh, in Ottawa in my, after my undergraduate in commerce with, a, if you remember, a company called Digital Equipment, which was quite a big player. Their head office was in in uh, Ottawa. And I knew I wanted to get for private sector. I wasn't a government person. Um, so I was excited. I went through six interviews and then they're supposed to get me started as a salesperson in Ottawa. And then I got a call from HR saying, uh, we think about sending you out to Halifax. You need to come in for some more interviews. And, you know, when you're just turned 22 and you got, you got rent to pay and you're sick of eating craft dinner for the fourth week in a row. And it's like, come on, I just need a paycheck. And, uh, I went to, uh, my last exam, um, in my undergrad and the guy that I, I broke the exam with and I went for a couple of drinks, the, byword market afterwards and he had more than a couple of drinks he slid his business card over to me just before he kind of passed out and on that business card was the sales director for for allergan but it was listed under glaxo smith klein mm. as they own the company so i call call him up and sure enough i get an interview monday morning with him in ottawa and then i interview with the district sales manager on tuesday and they, they give me the job i'm on a flight i think it was the following monday i never flown before and I get to Toronto and I'm thinking, oh, I'm working for GlaxoSmithKline. I even told my parents. And we drive right past that place and we go to this little office and I'm filling out a bunch of paperwork for Allergan. It wasn't until about halfway through the afternoon, I realized that John had had moved 
full-time into the Allergan eye care business. And Glaxo had basically separated them out of their family structure and eventually sold them off, I think, in 88, a few years later. But it, it took me the whole day to figure out what company I was working for. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, when you're 20, just get just getting started things that now are so common sense but mm. you know you're just so wide-eyed and mm. it's it's funny but and so <laughs> so she must have really enjoyed the conversation with you oh she loved it i, <laughs> I can love tell you that. Her, about her perspective and she, <laughs> like you say she's one of the people along the way that gave you the break right that gave you the yeah. chance to yeah. yeah she gave me a break i mean i, I don't if it wasn't for her i would not be able to have Probably, I mean, I went out of entered the pharmaceutical industry. So she gave me that shot. I, I worked like crazy after this job, typing away every single day, making education materials. Uh, they were for pharmaceutical companies, um, mostly narration, such as, um, you know, let's say cardiology learning module for sales reps. I would be the narrator for uh, uh, videos, uh, graphic videos right. that were being designed. And, uh, yeah. So a lot of it was content and it, it was it was a lot of heavy lifting um writing wise so it was it was it was a great experience and i but i had my eyes still on that on that job um which was a medical science liaison and um and i i got my next shot which is when we met uh, was which was with mertz pharma canada yeah so that you went immediately from the medical writing for her to the opportunity at mers so you were working mm -hmm. For MERS Canada. So back at that time, that was when Glenn Block was running MERS Canada. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? That's that's correct. Yeah. Right. So that was the original MERS Canada gang, so to speak. Because I want to say that they incorporated and launched their Canadian subsidiaries a few years before you joined. So you mm -hmm. would have been with the original gang that would have been Dr. Susie Manera. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Would that's she right. been your boss? Actually, no. It was um, it was a great gentleman called Sonny Bannot. Um, Sanjeev Banot. So he was he was overseeing medical affairs in in Canada at a field level, but from an expert level as well. And he reported to Susie. So the the next person who gave my shot was actually um, Sonny Banot. Um, uh, in addition to the others who had interviewed me as well, such as Glenn, Bob, Bennett, and uh, and Susie Manera. But but right. Sonny was the one who gave me his shot. Um, Gave me my shot uh, into the into the pharma role as a medical science liaison and kicked off my career. Yeah, yeah, boy. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how it felt for you the first, say, six months in that role, where now you're meeting a lot of um, physicians in the field practicing medicine? Uh, certainly, a career path you could have chosen with your with your run, but I, mm. I now understand why you chose to to sort of combine your two loves, science and business. Yeah. But there you are meeting a lot of scientific colleagues that are practicing medicine. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, the trials and tribulations of all that, especially the travel. Yeah. And uh, now you started your family by then, you and Effie, or was that just before you had your children? That was just before we had our children. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there you are. You were based in Montreal, correct? Yes. And uh, you had all the teaching hospitals in Montreal. And did you go all the way out to Atlantic Canada as well? I went all the way to Atlantic Canada and to an area called Maria Quebec or Marie Quebec, which is the furthest I've ever been on the St. Lawrence River. So I, I went everywhere, is my, is my point, around <laughs> Quebec and the Atlantic. Um, yeah. 
but it was it was awesome i i mean to answer your question rob i i, I sunny gave me the articles he gave me the materials and i was just glued to these things day in day out reading the science on this whole new area um of neuromodulators uh, which you know you spent your your career with and i was just so fascinated by this thing i mean i was just absorbing every single article that was out there um you know from the different companies from academia and I was just so excited to talk about it. <laughs> just talk yeah. about science. All, of, all yeah. the way back to Dr. Scott's seminal work in yeah. San Francisco, right, where he studied right. through the NIH grant the effect of yeah. neural toxins on, I want to say, did he strabismus. not study strabismus, right? Strabismus, that's right. Yeah. To, mm -hmm. to maybe as an alternative to surgery with tiny children. I mean, just brilliant. Yeah. The, the idea of neuromodulation and all the places yeah. it went, it can't help but It must have been captivating for you as a, science geek <laughs> to yeah. go wow i mean that could be applied to things like cerebral palsy yeah. estonia which was mm -hmm. all the fields that the industry was looking at and i i do recall now that when you joined uh, a lot of the neuroscience companies had their medical scientific teams covering the entire usage um, area for the mm -hmm. neuromodulators not focused in a particular like mm -hmm. now the industry's gotten so big that the msl's either choose the aesthetic dermatology space, which is the space you're in now, or they're on the more what they call therapeutic side, mm -hmm. which is, you know, the cerebral palsy, the dystonias, the right. disorder space, yeah. uh, migraine, all that. But boy, at yeah. the time you got, you got your hands in all of that though. You must've been like a kid in a candy store. Oh yeah. That's the, I, you know, I was trying to figure out a way to explain it, but that's, that's it. I mean, I absolutely love this Rob. I mean, I can't tell you how much I fell in love it's weird which <laughs> from iron to neuromodulators and i and i was just ready to to just you know have discussions around this thing and what's next for it and and you know what does the data mean today and i had so, i was so fortunate to have these brilliant you know talk with brilliant doctors in quebec and atlantic uh, canada and whenever i went to a conference uh, outside of quebec and atlantic with others in Canada as well, they're, they're such a large, um, such a legacy of neuromodulators in Canada. A lot of it was discovered uh, in Canada with the Carruthers for aesthetic use, and so there's a really strong legacy in Canada for for neuromodulators. And I, was, I, I absolutely loved it and brought this passion every single day. I would drive everywhere. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I would I would just go, you know. So I'd want to talk science all the time with um, with everyone. I I just completely fell in love with the um, with that particular area of the industry. Yeah, I can just imagine young Bill having so much fun with uh, probably a beat up company car, probably had <laughs> thirty forty thousand kilometers on it per year, driving through. Well, the challenges of driving through Montreal at the best of times, it's construction mm. in the summer or mm. horrible driving in the winter. But mm -hmm. then you get out over to the east side of Quebec and into Atlantic Canada. Man, I, I would have loved to have been there with you. That would have been mm. so much fun to get out and see your passion, enthusiasm, and get into all those practices and see also, too, right, the real application of that technology and the impact it was having on patient lives. Right. Uh, I, I really enjoyed that part, too. I mean, of course, it's all important. But when you see some of the early work that was done in cerebral palsy with the young children, helping them correct their walk or they call it a gate and get their feet flat on the ground and 
yeah. and get them to be able to walk and feel like other children in the school or a classroom that they yeah. they didn't stand out, weren't as awkward. I mean, the impact that had on the children, the parents, all of that stuff. You must have been just so excited to get up every day and go yeah. and go have those conversations. Yeah, I was, and I, you know, you described a company before. It was it was literally a startup at the time with a core group, and I was added on. Um, you know, in this this really this smaller size company, and to some extent, Rob, I, I felt like home. It was, um, it, it felt like the environment that I grew up in, um, with with my family in the in the in the family business, and I just felt so uh, at the right place to give this passion of these two things that I had, which was science and and being cognizant of, of the business as well. So it, yeah, those, those two things were, were really special with a really special group of people too. They were really awesome. Yeah. Well, that, that special group of people. Um, now when you think back, you and I've had some conversations recently in your executive role about the importance of what I guess we could call culture at that time, right? You've joined a team that as they built themselves, they were very cognizant. Thanks to Glenn's leadership, Susie, Bob, and others, Sonny, to say, well, look, if we're the founders of this company, what we do today, as we get started here in the, I think it was around 2008 to about 2011, they put the foundation down. And I remember we had our initial meeting in Buffalo, New York, because Susie was in the midst of her application for U.S. citizenship and couldn't leave the U.S. Uh, uh, geography so we all drove down to buffalo and i that conversation is so it's so nice to hear you say you were aware of the fact that it was a special environment because there was a purpose behind that uh, by those founding folks to make sure that they created a culture based on certain core values and they wanted that to be the experience that you guys had as the next wave of employees and they also wanted that to be one of the differentiators because you guys were heading into the neuromodulation market as a small player uh, against very established players like Allergan, right? So how do you differentiate yourselves? Um, well, there's the technology and there's some positive differentiation there, but there was a conscious effort to have it so that the companies really enjoyed the interaction that they had with you guys as MSLs and with the business development people and everybody up the chain of command. And you hear that today, like when you, when I engage with physicians that I've known for years and we start talking about the industry and how it's changed over the 20 or so years that neuromodulation has just exploded, that comes up quite a bit when we talk about, well, how did you end up having more of a relationship with company A versus company B? And, you know, the, the drug's important, of course, it's got to meet a certain standard of care, but because there's not huge differentiation in the way the drug works and the options that the physicians have. That that environment, or the I guess you would call it the, the corporate brand or corporate culture, does come into play a lot more than people think. Because uh, at the end mm. of the day, people people do business with people, right? So you must have really enjoyed all aspects of that: the science, the business, the culture, that great mm. small team that really set the tone, and it still survives today. I I, I do a little work still with your counterparts uh, from Merce Therapeutics here in Canada, and that culture is still the, the core. Uh, what's that now? 15 years later. So those guys were right. That little meeting Buffalo turned out to be correct. So that's, that's mm. kind of cool that you were at the front end of that. So mm. when we met, this is now this is cool for me because I understand everything that happened to that point much better. 
But this is what I see, Bill, that's so incredible about you over the 13 years is you've never lost the fire in your belly that came, as you say, probably from seeing how hard your dad and your brothers and your mom worked in the machine shop and what it took to be successful. You just never lost that. You, you've, mm. you've, you've never had a period of time where I've seen you coast. There's always been such a high energy, even today. And you got to a very high, I mean, so would argue this high as you could go in your field and private sector. But tell me a little bit about now you've 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 got a taste of the business science mix. Uh, you've had a great run, an early run here with Sonny and the folks at Merce Therapeutics in Canada. So now what what got things really what what happened? Where did the traction come from in your career to move up and take on more responsibility? Yeah. Well, there was one interesting milestone actually that um during during that time, uh, I think it was after about five so years after being at MSL, I was actually put into a sales role um, for about a few months. And Rob, that humbled me a lot. <laughs> I'm already a pretty humble guy, but I I was exposed to um, to to the sales side where it was much different than medical affairs, but. It it brought this whole other um, element uh, to how I work, uh, which was which is really difficult. Um, you know, having the sales role in the pharmaceutical industry. So I did that for a bit, and that actually that that milestone of doing that sales provided me a lot of context, and it guided me on how to present two different audiences. So when I presented to the sales force, I, I could understand what they're looking for. If I present to external colleagues or internal colleagues, but that milestone really was a big shift, almost like the focus component and everything else. But that few months there um, in that sales role was a great, um, was a great stretch for, for me to trend to, to switch. But then I switched back to medical affairs to your point, And I, worked a little bit in the US and then took on uh, something else, which I felt pretty passionate about. Uh, and I joined a company called um, PTC Therapeutics, which was looking at solutions for muscular Duchenne's disease. Mm -hmm. um, and then this was something that was was really interesting for me. Unfortunately, the, the drug um, didn't get approval. So that wasn't a very long-term um, where I was working in medical affairs in that particular company. And then, yeah. then, then came the next um, chapter of my life, which is still the story today of my journey, which was joining Galderma. And I, I joined Galderma Canada, um, overseeing a lot of the uh, medical operations in Canada. And um, then, then the next step after that was a really massive milestone in my life. Um, with my family and I have to preface it that I, I don't really think things can be done without the support of your family <laughs> without yeah, well, your wife and, I, and your children listen, that, I remember you got, and I had some uh, interesting conversations about both of those I'll call them uh, global opportunities because for a Canadian um, you know there's a there's a good market here for life science but it, it has its limitations and so many folks and you and I are included in this if we want to continue to grow we sometimes look well what could I do outside of Canada and you made that first move down to Raleigh North Carolina if I'm not mm -hmm. mistaken 
Yeah. Which again, it's a that's a big move. I can't remember if then you and Effie had your children. Did you? Were you guys? Uh, did you have kids at that point? Um, yes, we did. Yeah, my first my daughter was born, and my son. Um, I think believe she was pregnant. Yeah, he's on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's right, because your move was similar to mine. I, Christine, and I moved down to California when Eric was barely two, and Andrew was just a couple months old, and that's crazy time, right? You know, so mm. th- that's that's a big step and it's, there's a lot of things to be considered about both, you know, leaving both of your family connections behind hers and yours to Montreal. Now it's in the same time zone and listen, it's the U S it's not like you're going the other side of the world, but it's still a big decision because it's, it's all the change in the immigration status and you're learning new market. Of course, it's the biggest market in the world, the U S healthcare market. So all the challenges that came with that, but that's, one of the things, Bill, that has always stuck with me is that you had courage. You had, you didn't second guess. There was, of course, like all of us, you worry about, am I going to be able to succeed in that bigger arena? But I, you, you didn't seem to be someone who was intimidated by the idea. Of it. Mm-hmm. No, you're right. Um, yeah. Because it's a big idea. <laughs> so we were, it's a big, um, it's a, it was a big, uh, I mean, the Canadian role was a, was a big role, and I loved working with the leadership team and the teams there. It was absolutely amazing part of my career. Um, and then this this required a, a move to Sweden, um, which so was... So this is which, the move. Once you joined Galderma, if I recall correctly, you had a leadership role in the Canadian team. I think yeah. you were head of medical affairs for Canada with them, right? Before yeah. The, yes. yeah. Mm-hmm. So then, yeah, I remember you called me when that got on the radar and you were talking to a few folks, I think you're, if I'm not mistaken, you're, you're obviously your family, your parents, your brothers, others, some close mm-hmm. friends that you knew from the industry, mm-hmm. because boy, that's, that's a whole different consideration is do I now pull my young family out of their educational system, yeah. move them halfway around the world to Sweden and, and take this on. So yeah. at the end of the day for you and Effie, what made the what tipped the balance in favor of going? Why did you go? We we didn't know if if the, an opportunity like this would would come again to live in another country. I had only lived in the U.S., um, but for us as a family to be able to live in a in a different country in Europe and have that experience as a family where my kids are are still young. Um, we just, we just thought that would be such an amazing experience for us, not only from a family component, but also career wise, entering into a global role and understanding what happens outside of Canada and the U S from China to, um, you know, to different areas of Europe, to the Middle East, to South America. I mean, this was, this was quite an interesting thing career-wise learning-wise but also as a family um and everything and then again i i stress it it, these things cannot be done without the support um of the family and i was lucky to have the support and encouragement from my wife and my kids at the time and it ended up being rob um one of the best experiences of my life we yeah (laughs) for three years yeah yeah and as you mentioned now um, Effie was a big part of making that happen, and she's got her own advanced education too, right? What's yes. Effie's background? Uh, she's a PhD as well in experimental medicine. Yeah, yeah. 
So um, you guys make that decision as a couple came with a lot of considerations. There were a lot of moving parts, but I'm really happy to hear that you were excited about it. Uh, and I know both of you embraced it. What was the what was the sort of a personal highlight for you in the couple of years that you were over there? Oh, it was there's so many to highlight, but we we absolutely fell in love with Sweden. So we love that country. Um, a lot of similarities to to Canada. Um, they love hockey and it's cold, but they um, but you know just the fact that we were there together all the time um, in this in this house in Sweden, exploring Stockholm, different areas of Sweden, seeing Europe, um, was was just a a life changing experience for for all of us. Yeah, but that was but I I do recall Bill that you took on that attitude, and I remember you and I having conversation about. When we moved, I got the same advice that you were getting, which is if you're going to make a move like that, squeeze the lemon, like take mm. advantage of the opportunities. Don't miss it. You could be tired from all the travel. And I know you went through time zone travel to South America and China, different places. But I remember you telling me in that journey that you guys would push yourselves to plan to be tourists in Europe, like go see cool things, not only in Sweden, but get over to the other parts of Western Europe and just introduce the kids and enjoy it yourselves so that right. must have been amazing yeah it was it was fantastic yeah and the job itself was truly amazing so i was overseeing medical affairs um in aesthetics specifically and then medical education which was this um, platform called gain um which was you know something that was being worked on across the world so it was it was great on all ends i thought it was a success and then we moved back to canada afterwards yeah yeah, now what prompted that move? Because that's a it's 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 hard once you've got into a rhythm to make a change. And that's been the kind of the theme of it seems like your career and your life, Bill. Mm. Just when you've got a game figured out, you you boldly jump to the next ice flow and start over again. So here you are, you're in Stockholm, you and Effie and the kids are having a really good time. I know mm. it's a challenging job because I remember you telling me about it's a travel's heavy. The meetings are long. There's a big commitment. It's a big job. You got a lot of people that are reporting to, and you're responsible mm. for global strategy and medical. So it's a heavy job, mm. but what was the main motivation to come back to North America? Yeah. The opportunity arose for, uh, to oversee us medical affairs, which is, uh, the biggest market. And, you know, back to my practical business, roots <laughs> in terms of execution now I, i've just you know that done three years of strategy and and enabling and, and supporting execution now there was the opportunity to execute at a local level in the biggest market and that really interested me um yeah this this i felt like this is the next step and we're going to make a great impact in dermatology we're going to advance the science and we're going to we're, we're going to do a lot of good things here. And I, I felt like it was, it was time to do that. And I, I've been doing that for two years and it, it's been truly amazing. We've been innovating, we've been educating, um, providing support on all areas. And it's, it's a great large market. And I, I love being a part of that impact for not only the company, but for the patients and the doctors directly. Um, which is uh, nice. And I remember, I remember when you were considering the move. Um, one of the things that was enticing to you, as you just said, is the it's the big leagues. It's <laughs> back to our baseball mm -hmm. backgrounds. It'd be like playing AAA, 
and mm-hmm. suddenly getting the call. Mm-hmm. Bill, we want you to come to the biggest market in the world mm-hmm. and uh, leverage the experience you had uh, providing global thought leadership and strategy, but now get, get in the game. So, yeah, you know, uh, get out there and play at the highest level with the best competition, the biggest market. So mm. it, it it seemed like it was a real adrenaline rush, a real big opportunity. You know, it kind of reminds uh, it reminds you when you you know we're watching a program about sporting heroes when they get the call to join the big leagues, whether it's football, hockey, or baseball. It's a moment you never forget, and I'm sure you felt yeah. that way about someone at Galdura coming to you saying, "Bill, we really admire what you're doing. You're creating a lot of value." Now we want to put you in the biggest job we can think of for someone with your background, and that's VP yeah. Medical Affairs for U.S. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, yeah. I've I've been really fortunate, Rob, with with Galderma has provided so much, um, and I at this stage of my career now overseeing the U.S. like you just described it so well. It's uh, it just it felt or it still feels really really right to to be in a position where I can do that in the biggest market, and it's. Um, some of the most brilliant minds in the U.S. Also engaging with them, it's it's been it's fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Now put, putting yourself into the deepest end of the pool, <laughs> you know, with the roughest waters, the biggest challenges. I got to think that now, a couple years into it, you have learned and experienced some things that maybe were a surprise. Like you can never know until you do it, right? So, what has been the biggest takeaway now that you've had from this? run on the ladder this big step forward what is something that makes you stronger as a leader now bill than you would have been a couple years ago uh yeah i think i think being um having experienced the different markets and working in the different countries has really provided a lot of value for me in just working with people <laughs> it's as simple as that so i i i um yeah i i i just learned so much uh you know working working in sweden and then from a strategic component and then switching to still strategic but also but focusing a lot on the execution um yeah i i just learned that i just learned so much more um having gone through that that I yeah. So yeah, and it's um you know it's a parallel universe you're living uh with your your cousins on the commercial side that I have a lot of dealings with as you know because that's the side I grew up on and actually a lot of the podcast interviews we're doing in the series are with uh commercial leaders, some of them in the life science area. And it's funny because they will express the same learning curve in a broad sense. You have to Take advantage of your subject matter expertise and show that you can do the highest possible things in that area, whether it's on the sales side or marketing or human resources or finance or strategy. You get you get on that ladder, you go as far as you can go, and then you'll often find that uh, people with those gifts get asked to take on something global. So can you be successful outside of your domestic responsibilities? So um, on the marketing side, you'll see people like I think you met Gerard Fernandez in your travels. So Gerard was living a parallel universe to you. He was thriving in that commercial leadership role uh, ladder that he was on in Canada. And then at some point, he needed to show that he could operate successfully outside of Canada. So he took a global role in Europe, uh, much like you did. And then 
And then coming back to North America, like you did, well, how can you prove to your current employer that you can handle the challenges of, in your case, Bill, leading the biggest market for both strategy and execution? And what I've really seen you do that I admire so much is not let go of the strategic. You still have that as a big part of your portfolio. But I think you, what I've watched is you've learned to let that go to the folks who report to you and mentor and encourage them to raise their games so that mm. they take on more strategic responsibility. And you've put a nice shift in your focus over the last two years towards, I'd say, sharpening your saw as a people leader and mm. a culture leader, which isn't the first instinct of folks in some ways when they they want to go back to their comfort zones. They want to, you know, you got really good at the strategy, the global piece. And, but I was impressed how quickly you allowed your folks to step up and then you shifted your, your focus to how can you help fight for resources internally and champion the medical affairs team and the impact they were having, especially in the U.S., which was quite impressive. And you helped reestablish their brand internally, to, to put it bluntly, um, and, and got them the resources that they need. So that was a gift. I think that comes with your sort of natural interpersonal savviness. You know how to do well in the environment of the boardroom. You know, you've been there now for a while, and you've learned the game, as we were talking about before. But what impresses me most, Bill, I have to say, watching you, and, what, and again, it doesn't matter whether the subject matter expertise is accounting, finance, HR, manufacturing yours is medical affairs but at some point at the executive level you've done what a lot of people struggle with and it's that can i not only influence the organization at the enterprise level but can i take on the challenge of sharpening my saw to level it needs to be sharp to flourish as an executive leader when it comes to people and culture mm. and in the two years you've been there you've had uh, like most people leaders, you've had every challenge that's in the mix, right? An opportunity to hire fresh, uh, an opportunity to upgrade the team that you had, bring on new resources, shape the culture. Um, you've you've promoted some people who you feel have more to give. You've had to make maybe a difficult decision or two on moving people off of assignments and into other roles or out of the company, perhaps. So all of those challenges, I think you've taken head on and I know that it's been there's been some difficult times, as there always is with anybody as a people leader. These are the things probably you find consume your energy far more than you anticipated. But also the I think the other thing that in particular I admire about your leadership style is you it, and whether you took this from your early days with MERS and what the team with Glenn Block and Bob and others did, but you've put the appropriate emphasis, in my opinion, on culture. Like from almost the first few weeks you were in that job. You were you and I were talking about this. You were asking questions about how do you establish the right working environment so that people who work with you get to flourish and give you their best work. And uh, I wonder if you could speak a little bit about that because I'm sure our audience, especially folks who've taken on large responsibility, you know, wonder when do I play the culture card? Yeah, yeah, we. Um... Yeah, I was really fortunate to when I started the position. There's some really great people um, working in the team who've done so many great things, like Alderma. So that was that was a big plus when I started in the U.S. So it was such a great, great U.S. medical affairs team. Um, but the one thing we did was um, we did this exercise where 
actually was with you where we tried to go deep in, into each of us and understand who we are and what our values are. And we, we spent about a day um, just getting really deep into what our values are from a business standpoint um, in our life, what's important, what does success look like, what gets us there, all these really important questions. And we narrowed them down to, to the keywords such as, you know, trust, resiliency, uh, passion. And those words, they were defined as our core values within our department, so from our leadership team. And this was important for us because we understood this homogenous environment that we were in that was defined by these core values. And they were, you know, five, six words. And it helped us understand how we make decisions, how we react, how we hire, how we onboard, and how we, we treat others. And it's yeah. It's, and what I like about know. that conversation, Bill, I'm sure you felt the same way. Was how organic and natural it was. That people told yeah. their story, how they got here, who inspired them, and then, man, it was incredible how you could see themes emerge. To yeah. your point, like two yeah. or three in particular that really kept coming up. And I love. It's great to hear those stories, and it's interesting. But what I really liked about what you and your team did from there was. You said, well, let's run with that. You know, let's make yeah. that what we're all about. As you say, when it comes to hiring, let's look for people who share those values. The diversity of people that you've hired culturally and uh, demographically is impressive. But one of the things I think you guys have done a nice job of is make sure you're getting those core values because it's part of the fabric of how you want to work together and how you want to treat each other and other departments and yeah. external customers. So your discipline around it has been impressive. Um, you've embedded those core values in your day-to-day, -day, the hiring, the development, the onboarding. Even I've seen you, this is the ultimate test, Bill, when there's been some headwinds, when there's been difficulties in the work environment that um, come from out of your control. I've really been impressed with you and your team that you've gone back to discuss, well, how does this impact the way we want to work together? This is These are the core values we're supposed to be operating under. If we choose certain, if we make certain choices here, which one honor our core values the best? And yeah. I've watched you guys have that conversation with each other, and it's been very impressive to me because it's guided your decision making in tough times. And yeah. I think you've been the benefactor of that as a team because some difficult decisions have been made where you recognize the trade offs and use the culture almost as your guidepost, if you want to look at it that way, right? And yeah. And I'll tell you, it's been very impressive because every team is going to face challenges. There's always some kind of crisis coming around the next corner. We just don't know what it is, right? Look at mm. the last five years of if you're in business in the U.S. or you know, North America or global for that matter, certain things have happened in the economic environment. Nobody could have predicted, not the least of which is COVID. But there's always something that we just can't see coming. And there it is. And what I really admire about you and your team is, man, you you really, you're really serious about it. you have a culture strategy. It's not just a bunch yeah. of words on a website. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, we do. We're we're serious about it, and it and it feels right, and it, yeah, and it's um, it's 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 grounding on our love for science, but also making an impact with patients and advancing dermatology. But to get there, we need to understand who we are and what our values are, and that's that was important step one, and 
and we did it and we still hold true to it so yeah and it's been by any objective measure bill it's been enormously successful um i hear from your commercial counterparts in your business and from people as they join your team nothing but the most positive reaction like your team's ability to stand firmly on the science side and do your job so well to represent the medical education, your responsibility to engage um, external KOLs in an appropriate way. But also what's a little different is you're comfortable having the conversations around the business in an appropriate compliant way. And that's not as common. Um, there's There's been such a silo between and I think sometimes artificially created for the wrong reasons between the functions in most like science companies. We all understand how important it is to separate church from state because we have to protect, you know, patient interests and physician and medical interests. But there's a time and a place, you know, to engage each other to make sure that you're doing the right things for patient journey, the physician journey. And you can't do that if you're going to maintain silos and, I just don't see those silos where you guys are. And I think, Bill, you and your team should take a fair amount of the credit for this because I think you know you've learned this new game, right? You've you've all learned to adapt to the fact that you're working in a private sector company. And there's a certain responsibility to think at the enterprise level as well as your little domain, whether, again, whether you're in finance or on the medical side or on the commercial side, let's say, in sales and marketing. I I really like... And I think this defines you and your team and its brand that you've done a great job living your core values, but also making sure that you do so in a way that lives up to the promise and responsibility of not just medical affairs, but the enterprise and the interests of the enterprise and the patient and the customer. It's been remarkable to watch. And I, I use you guys as a, an example oftentimes when I'm engaging medical affairs teams uh, for the first time, and they ask about best practices. It's it's probably my most common reference point in my head, although I keep your company name and your name anonymous unless it's appropriate, but it's there for me as a reference point. So I just wanted to make sure you knew how much I value it and the people that I share it with value. I think you guys have done some remarkable things at Galderma under your leadership, Bill. Yeah, thank you, Ron. Okay, so listen, just as we wrap up, is there anything that when you reflect back on your career and even your personal life, Bill, you you feel would be important to share with our audience because I, I just think you've had such a great run. And to me, what sort of jumps out about your particular journey was, I, I think that upbringing you talked about with your, your family business, um, the fact that you learned those fundamental you know, so immigrant family principles that most of us in North America have to uh, hopefully can, can leverage as we go along, because most of us are just mutts, you know, people who try hard just to get to a new a new life, whether it's first, second generation or multiple generations. But I like the way you leverage that, but then combine that with such a curiosity and a courage. Um, you're just a constant learner. And, 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 and also, you have a great sense of humor, but like, you're fun to be around. So I can see why. You put all those ingredients together. It doesn't surprise me you've had such a good run. But is there anything that you think of? You said you'd like to share with the audience, you know, an anecdote or an idea or a story that we haven't talked about yet. Yeah, yeah, I've I've got one which was um, which is really important. It's, it's thanks to you. I I spent most of my 
academic and professional career around and you, you know you've heard it during my when i was in school it was it was just work 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 hard learn how to work harder learn how to work better um you know learn the tools execute um and then i spent you know a large portion of that of my life just work hard and then what I learned was, you know, when we had discussions was there's there's other components to being successful um, in life. And, um, you know, there's for me to find, you know, there's 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 at least three things. And one of them is work for sure. But the second one is um, is the home team, as you mentioned, in baseball. And that's, you know, with a family, my wife and kids and making sure that, you know, we're all um you know, we're all, we're all good together and, um, that that's, that that's successful also. So that's a really important component. Um, you know, having the support of the wife, my wife and my children and supporting them as much as I can as a father and a husband. Um, that's, that second component is, is, is so important to have this whole thing be successful. And the third one is, is just around health and it's easy, especially with Zoom calls and, and uh, or Teams calls and travel. It's easy to lose that, and I, I'm, you know, I'm sharing. I lost that for many years. <laughs> I, I hadn't picked up tennis rackets since um, I can't remember when, and it, it was just something we had talked about. I was like, why, why haven't I picked up a tennis racket in 20 years? And so I, you know, that third chapter or that third component was around health, and I made an effort to to ensure that I do some exercise for me, it's, um, tennis and some other workouts. But, um, for me, those are three key success factors. If you would have asked me a few years ago, what was a success factor? I'd tell you work, you know, work, work, work. And we need to, you know, learn that's hundred percent important, but there's two other things that need to fit in, um, to be successful. So I don't know if that makes sense, but I, I those, those two additional components are very important. Uh, for anyone's career and a big learning for me. Yeah. And, and, you know, we need to learn those things at different stages when they become pain points, right? And most of us who choose the path you were on and largely I was on, it almost comes at a point where it's critical. Like you can only work so hard and have too much of a, a muscle developed on that, on that side, if you will. And you realize, yeah, I haven't kept myself perhaps in the best physical mental shape. Uh, some even find the spiritual aspect gets lost. And then when you rediscover those, you realize, man, they are like, they're important legs on the soul, just other legs. And it's, it's once you get a taste of being able to engage uh, in those three areas you talked about, Bill, I think you're probably at the stage now where you wouldn't allow yourself to let either of those uh, go, go yeah. sideways, right? right? It's become kind yeah. of the new normal. Yeah, if you will. exactly. I'm, I'm really happy to hear you say that. I just happened. I I felt fortunate to be sitting in the navigator's chair when you you were coming to that realization there a number of years ago because I had had that same realization. I had a person in my navigator's chair. My coach was named George. I'm a Montreal guy, by the way. He did the same thing for me. Sort of held the mirror up and said, "Yeah, I'm kind of seeing some things that are gaps. What are you going to do to fix them?" And uh, luckily, I had a supportive partner, Christine, and a, a couple of boys that could help me. But it, it's it's now the new normal. Like, I couldn't imagine not 
investing in my physical mental health any differently than my business. You know, it just seems like it's a given, but yeah, it, I guess it takes it sometimes to get depleted before we recognize how important it is. Mm, right. Well, good on you. Well, Bill, thanks for a great conversation this morning. We really enjoyed it. Thanks, Rob. Okay. Thank you. We'll be in touch. All right. Take care, guys. Take care. Bye.